Okay, well, this will be my last time to be with you guys, but we will be here till the end of the camp time. They said, you can go home after it's over. I said, I want to stay till the end. And they said, okay. So I'm glad I made that decision, and so we're going to be able to do that. Somebody asked me this question later today, and they said, what do you do for your own devotional time? I said, well, what I do, I'm over here in the middle, me in the middle, here we go. I said, what I do is I read a walk through the Bible devotional magazine that's put out. We put out a lot of magazines. We put out one called the Daily Walk, which takes you through the whole Old Testament and in the Bible sometimes in a year. And I've done that before. I have a Bible called the Daily Walk Bible, which actually has a Bible that you can read devotions of every page of the Bible all the way through in one year. I've done that a few times. I've also used a magazine. The, the one I use now is called Indeed. And uh, it's absolutely amazing. It takes certain four themes for the month and does those four themes. It's a Devo magazine that you can read and then turn to the Scripture, read some additional Scriptures that go along with it. And you can get any of those magazines from walkthrough.org. It's on the back of your workbooks. It's W-A-L-K-T-H-R-U, walkthrough.org. And you can get some of those Devo magazines if you like them or the books. The one I love so much is this is written by one of our authors at Lock Through the Bible. His name is Chris Tigreen. Of course, Chris, I, asked, I had dinner with Chris tonight. Chris, stand up right here. Tell, tell what, what you asked me the question about and what Chris Tigreen's ministry has meant to you. Oh, he's got more wisdom than me. Yeah. Becky, Becky reads the same thing, doesn't he? Yeah. Becky says the same thing. And he's putting out a brand new one this fall called Salt and Light. And it'll be amazing. So whatever he writes, I read. There are several people that authors that whatever they write, I read. One is John Ortberg. Whatever he writes, I read. Mark Batterson, everything he writes, I read. So, and I have some people like that that I just love it. Chris Tigreen is on that short list. What he writes, I read. So that's an, that, that's an important thing if you're interested in something like that. Then if any of you are ever interested in having a walk through the Bible live event in your church, if you just let me know over the next day and a half before we leave and just say, hey, I might be interested and you give us the name of your church or your pastor, I'll be glad to send them some information. There's no obligation in this at all. We'll just be able to talk, or you can talk to your pastor about this. It takes about two and a half hours to do, and we take you all the way through the Old Testament in two and a half hours. That can be done on a Saturday from 9 to noon. It can be done on a Sunday. If you get to preach in the morning service, that's about an hour. People go home, eat lunch, come back, do another hour and a half, and they've learned the entire Old Testament. First time I went through this, it changed my understanding of Scripture. Now, every time I hear somebody preach, they're preaching on Solomon. I know exactly where that occurs. He's one of the first three kings of Israel during the United Kingdom. I understand the context of where they're preaching. And so it will change the way I've read the Bible since I've been at Walk Through the Bible. When I went to Israel, that changed my understanding of the Bible too because I never read the Bible in the same way. Everywhere I went, read, I remembered seeing the place where that story took place in my mind. And it just so made 
the scripture is more alive and clarified for me. So I would encourage you to do that, maybe to think about attending one of these live events if you ever see one in your area or you have a chance to have one in your own church to go. Has anybody ever been to one before somewhere? Let me see your hands if you have. Anybody at all? Just a few people that are here. Not many have. But, but millions of people have gone through this, and it's a great, great tool. If you want me to come, I'll be glad to. If you live somewhere where one of our instructors lives closer to you and can come, they're great. And we'll help you any way we can if you want to be able to do this. And so I hope you will take advantage of that. And just let me say, on behalf of my wife and myself, how much we have enjoyed just being here around all of you guys. It's been a lot of fun. From the leadership and how they treated me when they first contacted me to the people that picked me up at the airport to coming down here, meeting some of the staff, the worship team praying with them backstage in the, or before Sunday morning, and then just getting to sit at the table with many of you guys and gals during the course of this week has just been wonderful for us. For many of you, us, it's been like a divine appointment to be able to pray with you and help you and encourage you, and things you've told us have just blessed the socks off of us as well. So it's been a joy beyond what we ever could have thought or expected to be in a place like this. And so... We're all in for the future of what this place is going to do. My wife and I have already talked about what we want to do. And so we want to have a role and part in playing in what this ministry does in the future. It's impacted us that much just in a few short days. For some of you, you've been here for 7, 10, 15, 20 years. You're far more deeply invested than we are. But we want to have a part to play as well. So I hope that you will bless this ministry and be a part to help them in the future. So take your books, and we'll turn to the last section here, section six, at Walk Through the Bible About Detour. Now, let me tell you something. We're not going to be teaching you here, but you can do of your own volition if you'd like to under Somebody, a guy came to me and said this, isn't it amazing that the story of, of Joseph so parallels the story of Jesus? Now, a lot of people and scholars who know more than me have spent a lot of time and effort in to understand those correlations. And you can simply Google comparisons between Joseph and Jesus. Pretty simple. You'll pull up probably 75 things in the story of Joseph that were also true about the life of Jesus. So it's amazing. So I'd encourage you to use Mr. Google and find out that information or if you don't want to Google it, do it on your own. Start just trying to study and think about, how is this? Oh, this story. Oh, yeah, this is true. It's betrayed by his brother. It's betrayed by his brother. You can start going down all the list and line and find all kind of neat stories. And what that shows you is just the beauty of the one story of the Bible, how it's all connected by God and interconnected. It's such a beautiful thing. When you think about the Garden of Eden, and God's original intent, uh, intent in Eden, and then what's happened there with the fall, the flood, the spreading out of nations, and then God taking his people and taking them as a nation and putting them in captivity and delivering them. And the whole story of the Bible is just a fascinating history until the New Testament comes on the scene. Then we have the life of Jesus and the story of the apostles, all the epistles and the letters that were written. It's just an amazing collection of 66 books. And so I hope you'll read it, you'll study it, you'll make it your lifelong companion, and uh, I just hope that you do. But you can do some study on that because it is pretty fascinating. So tonight we're going to look at the last one, which is simply called Joseph and His Legacy. And it's about Genesis chapter 50. Now, we've learned that God rarely, he could, 
But it seems like in all the stories of the Bible and all the people I've ever known, takes people not ever that I've ever known directly from point A to a point B throughout the entirety of their life. But instead, like the story of Joseph, it is zigged, it is zagged, it's up, it's down. It's forward, it's backwards. It's different. It's work. It's almost looks like it's going to fail. Then it miraculously makes it. There's, there's all kinds of ways that go on all of our individual journeys. Sometimes there are planned detours. And uh, because God is more interested in developing our character than the fulfillment of the dream. But why do you love more, the dream or the God who gave you the dream? If God gives you a dream and the dream comes to life and God shows up in it, sometimes that dream even dies or it appears to die. It may be that God wants you to see what is more important to you, the dream or him, the giver of the dream. I've had that happen before where I thought something's going to come to pass and it seemed to go well and then it just crumbled. The dream. Maybe God is trying to say, do you trust me as the dream giver more than simply that dream fulfillment of what you had? Sometimes that tends to happen. So, let me go to this one first. Each week we looked at, each session that we went through, we looked at the life of Joseph. And we've seen how God took his life on a major detour before finally giving him his dream job. Now, this is a picture taken in some of the promotion for the story of Joseph told by the Millennium Theater at the Sight and Sound Theater in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Have any of you ever been there? Let me see your hands if you've been there. Is that one amazing thing? Did you see Joseph? Yeah, they, they've done Noah, they've done, they've done Joah, Jonah, Jonah, they've done Joseph, they've done Ruth. They're doing the life of Jesus now with the largest LED screen ever put into a theater. When you see Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, you will think he's coming out of the wall of the theater from the Sea of Galilee into the boat right to the shore. Google that and YouTube it. Look at it. I mean, it's, it'll, it's breathtaking. When we saw the story of uh, Noah, at one portion in the play, when the lights go out, the side walls open and there's animatronic animals looking at you like you're sitting inside the ark while it's rocking. I got seasick. <laughs> but the lighting effects, thinking, man, I'm a little queasy here. <laughs> and the lights, I felt like I was moving in the boat. But that's an amazing place. And it just packs this 2,500-seat theater out two or three times a day all year long with people wanting to see these Bible dramas. So if you ever get a chance to go there or Branson, Missouri, they put on these same presentations, and they are incredible. Well, I don't know why I told you all that, but that's where that picture came from. But I thought that picture was so cool. So we've talked about Joseph, and we've talked about several things. We've talked about Joseph and his family, Joseph and his work, Joseph and his choices, Joseph and his nation. This morning, Joseph and his heart. And in the last session is Joseph and his legacy. When his life was over, what did he leave behind? How's he remembered? These are important questions for us. I didn't think much about this, but the older I get, the more I kind of start thinking about it. I didn't think about what kind of legacy when I lived when I was 21. When I had three kids running around like you guys have here, it's still amazing to me. To see the kids running around here, it's like they've been set free or something. They, they just come here and they're just, they're just like little ants. They're just everywhere. 
I'm seeing a, a, a scooter go, phew, and a bike go, phew, right beside me here. And these kids are all around. First day we got here, we came out of the dining hall, and a little three-year-old was standing there. He was crying. He said, oh, it's my daddy. And I, I said, somebody came around and get him, what's your daddy's name? Daddy. That's his name, Daddy. But the kid said, he has a blue shirt. I said, okay. We started looking around here. We found a guy, two guys with a blue shirt. Are you the dad? And so we found the right blue shirt. We got them connected together. And he hugged that little boy. The little boy said, Daddy, Daddy, I thought your mommy had you. I didn't know you were here, blah, blah, blah. I've seen that happen over and over. Kids just running. I don't know where the parents are. They're just little kids here going this way. But somehow they end up back with you, and they know where to get in. We live in this dorm right here. Isaac, it's called. More little kids are always banging on the door. <laughs> Somebody to let them in. I'm going down there. Come on in, Johnny. Where's Johnny's parents? I'm letting Johnny in like all day long here. <laughs> Give Johnny a key, all right? And he's out there. Little card, beep. Door opens, but I probably don't give Johnny a key. The key would be thrown in the lake or something. It's gone, so. But it's been so fun to watch all that happen. But I don't think about legacy when I was your age and I had kids running around. I was just thinking about how to survive, how to get them through it, and all the stuff they had to be in, schools and the practices and the sports and the travel and the friendships and the relationships and watching them grow and mature and the money spent. Just like, it's just like money was just flying out of our household, you know, to take care of all these children as they're growing and maturing. You'd buy them clothes and shoes, and they wouldn't fit again in six months, and their feet would have just gone. And so you're thinking, ah! I wasn't thinking about legacy back then. But now that we're empty nest, now that we got grandkids, now that we've hit the 66 number in age, I think about it more now than I ever did. Of what are we going to leave behind? What type of legacy have we built here? So, let's start looking at legacy and what it is. Legacy is a gift by will, especially of money or other personal property. I remember when Becky's parents passed away. We got a check in the mail from her parents that was more money than we'd ever made in our life in a few years. One check. I remember thinking, this is a really good day. I mean, I love Paw and I love Meemaw, but I really love this check that they left their kids. Only three kids, and Becky, thank God, got a third of it. And that allowed us to become debt-free, really. We paid off our house. We traded in some old cars, bought some new cars. And so all of a sudden, now we're in a great position that Dave Ramsey would be so proud of us to be in, and that we don't call in and scream on the radio show, but we are debt-free. That happened because of a legacy, because of what he left to us. That was a great day. Now that we're debt-free, our house is debt-free. We have some funds saved up. One day should something happen to us sooner than later, we pass away, our kids will rejoice again when the check comes to them. Even though we're gone, they will be lovingly getting the checks that we have from our legacy. So it's property or something that you leave to the next generation. Something transmitted or received from an ancestor or a predecessor. That's the legal definition of this term. Now, our world says legacies belong to people who are powerful, wealthy, and famous. 
And that's what we think about. These, like I went by on the boat to the Kellogg Mansion on the pontoon ride. And now it's the house they don't even live in. The Kellogg people don't even live there anymore. They just charge admission for you to see what their house was like. Where we live in South Carolina, we can drive about an hour to Asheville and we can see the Biltmore House. Have you been to the Biltmore House? Yes, we're just down the road from there. But at the Biltmore House, it's America's finest castle built by Vanderbilt, Colonel Vanderbilt. And what he did is he built railroad tracks in to build this massive house it's just incredible. It had a swimming pool. It had a bowling alley. It, the rooms are just spectacular. As soon as the house was built, they tore the tracks out all the way back out and left all the hundreds of acres that was around the Biltmore house. It's fantastic. That's what we often think about. People powerful, wealthy, famous. Legacies are determined in the milestone moments of life. That's what generally people think of. But what does God say? That's what the world thinks. What does God say about a legacy? A little bit different. Just a, a little bit different. Watch. God says everyone leaves a legacy. And some of the most extraordinary legacies belong to the most ordinary people. And what legacies are in God's perspective are the sum total of the daily decisions you've made all of your life. Remember what I said that Andy Stanley said was the greatest question ever asked? What is it? Who remembers that? What is the wise thing to do, right? The more wise decisions that you've made are building a legacy. Dumb, stupid decisions you make, not so much. It's going to hurt your legacy. The more wise, the better. And so that's how God views legacy here. Now, let's look about the story of Joseph. Joseph is remembered for several things. One of the things he's remembered as, as a man of loyalty. So we'll look at these scriptures here and see what the scripture says about him. Genesis chapter 50. Now, when we start to read this, we're going to see the death of Joseph's father has already happened. And that's Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And so this is what Joseph is thinking now about his father who's now passed on this heritage to him. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, four patriarchs. Watch. Joseph threw himself on his father, wept over him, and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in the service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. That's, a lot. That's a, quite a process. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, back in Israel. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. So that's what's going on. So loyalty is the most accurately measured by answering the question, How much do people trust me? Pharaoh trusted Joseph. He said he'd go back and bury his father, that he would do what? He would return. He would return. He said, I'll come back. No fear. I'm not going to leave you. I'm second in command. You've made me that. I'm loyal to you. That was his mantra that he chose to live by, being very, very loyal. And Joseph's loyalty is most clearly seen in his relationship with his family and his authorities that were there. Number two, Joseph is remembered as a man of forgiveness. 
a man of forgiveness. And boy, is this ever true, you know. When you think about this, Joseph had already forgiven his brothers, which is quite amazing. And after his father dies, I'm sure they thought, uh-oh, he was awfully nice to us while father was still here with us. But now that it has gone or his true color is going to come out, he's going to be angry and mad at us for what we did to him. That thought probably crossed their minds. You say, well, how do you know that? Bible says so. Look, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, <laughs> they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They were all saying, yeah, I think he might. Yeah. They were all having this little session. What often worries me in staff meetings when I lead staff meetings at church is the meeting after the meeting. Pastors here know what I'm talking about. You have a staff meeting and you go over some tough stuff. Then you see a bunch of guys around a water cooler afterwards and they're kind of buzzing about it. You kind of see this little meeting going on after the meeting. This is the meeting after the meeting here, okay? They sent word to Joseph saying, uh, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers and sins and wrongs that committed in treating you so badly. Your daddy wanted you to do this. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their messages came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him and said, we are your slaves. Remember that dream? The sheaves bowing down. The sun, the moon, the stars bowing down to Joseph. This is in one of those four times when they're going to bow down to him, exactly fulfilling that dream. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Man, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is my favorite verse in the Old Testament. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Because through that harm came certain things that happened and put in motion the good. What was the good? The saving of many lives. He was now able to save the world from starvation. That's a pretty good thing that came out of a result of him being put in there. We've already talked about that situation. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now they were finally convinced. They were saying, okay, I can take a, breathe a sigh of relief now. I don't have to worry about this anymore. I know we're all right at this particular time. So they felt pretty good. So Joseph's brothers were full of guilt, and they were afraid he would go after revenge. Write that down. They asked for mercy in memory of their father, and they bowed. Joseph assured them he had forgiven them and said, don't be afraid. So write that one down. Don't be afraid. Number three, Joseph is remembered as a man of perspective. What do you mean by that? That means the way we see life. Here's a great definition of wisdom. Wisdom is seeing life from God's point of view. So whenever I need to make a major decision or any type of decision of importance, great question to ask is, God, what do you think about what I'm about to decide? Is it A or B? Is it go or not? Whatever the decision is, when I heard the Pribbles telling about their story, going back, what's the wise thing to do? They saw that ad. It was up for 24 hours. They answered it. Ad was gone. Pretty good deal in the timing of God that that was a wise decision. That perspective 
was pretty much a God moment that God was acting on their behalf and showing them this open door of opportunity. And now it starts to say in Genesis 50 this, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. Joseph's response to his brothers was balanced. He acknowledged that their actions, their motives, their deeds were evil. But he also recognized that God is what? Sovereign and able to transform evil acts to good results. What does the word sovereign mean? It means God is in what? Control. We trust God because he is sovereign. My son Aaron wrote a song called Sovereign Over Us. It's one of the best songs I think he's ever written. Because truly God is in control of his people and of this world. And so we trust in him and his sovereignty, even though sometimes it doesn't look good to us. Joseph discovered how his personal story fit into God's epic story. This is an amazing thing, how it fit into God's epic story. Here's the truth of your personal stories. You are not the center of the universe. Neither are any of your children the center of the universe. But do you know that most kids grow up thinking they are? Mark Batterson stated it like this in one of his books. When we are born into this world, the world revolves around us. We're spoon-fed on the front end and diaper-changed on the back end. As if the entire world exists to meet our every need. That's fine if you're a two-month-old. If you're a 22-year-old, it's a problem. There's a time to grow up when you realize story's not about me. Story's not about me. It's about God. It's God's story, how I fit into the story of God, not how he fits into my world and what I want to have happen. Now, when you see Joseph's family tree, it's really complicated. And certain of you have told me that you have enjoyed this graphic particularly because of the family trees you've come from. I've heard some of your stories and the family trees are like, amazing like from this and this and horrible to wow and meeting this person and a soldier getting saved in Iraq and his wife back home had already been converted and how they've been joined together and now the godly family can form from people that were far from God originally and I've heard so many cool stories from some of you telling me your life story at, in, at the tables it's just really been wonderful well look, well look at this we showed you that in the early days remember there were the two women the elder sister he did not want to marry Leah but came in the sneaky father-in-law that did that and then Rachel over here the one that he loved the most he worked seven years and he thought he was getting her he did in seven more years so he worked 14 years till he finally got the one he loved but over here, look particularly at this, how coming out of Leah here will be from the tribe of Levi, will be Moses, and it will be Aaron, and it will be Zadok, the priest. So it will be the Levites, the priest, and the high priest will all come out of that line from that boy. And then look at the next from the tribe of Judah will come King David and King Solomon, and then all the good kings of Judah until the time of Jesus is born. So you can see these family trees, how they're spreading out now. Over here on the right, you will see the brothers of Joseph and Benjamin born to Rachel. And from Benjamin will come King Saul. From that, the first king of Israel. So you can see how this family tree is kind of put together and how they were all descended. It's kind of an interesting thing. Now, do you think 
Joseph understood any of this at this time. Not, no, no, he probably didn't understand any of this at this time. But he knew he was a link in the chain of God. You intended it for evil, but God meant it for good for the saving of many lives. I think he meant for the generation of his people and for the world as a, in a whole. So he, he knew he was a link in the story of God. And that's a fascinating thing to me, the story that God was writing. So the fourth thing true is that Joseph is remembered as a man of faith. Now this is a fascinating thing to me. There's a chapter in Hebrews 11 called the Hall of Fame of Scripture, of Bible characters, a Hall of Heroes, whatever you want to call it. But it talks about Abraham and Isaac and Samson and David and all these great men and women of God. And mostly what it talks about is one of the most amazing things. Like it talks about Abraham, how he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice and in faith believing and God would spare his son. And it, it gives you all this amazing beautiful one-liners of what great things they did. When it comes to Joseph, what's it going to say about Joseph? Is it going to show that he endured sexual temptation to Potiphar's wife and stayed pure? Is it going to say that he was faithful when he was thrown in prison for years and still stood firm? Is it going to say he took a risk to ask Pharaoh He's going to interpret the dreams and bring tough news about the coming famine. Is that going to happen to Joseph in the story? None of that is what is listed in Hebrews 11 about Joseph. One of the most strange and bizarre scriptures is the thing it says about him in the hall of fame of Bible characters. And I'm not going to show it to you. I'm going to move on through. Okay, now... I will. I'll show you. It made me laugh today when I read this again. And I asked my wife, and she was scratching her head. And I said, let me show you what it really says about this guy. This guy about we've talked about all magnanimous, great things that have occurred in his life. Here's what it says. Oops. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Well, thank you, Joseph, for those words. Thank you for that Hebrews, author of Hebrews. Some think it was Paul, or nobody knows exactly who wrote the book. Was that the, I bet if I was Joseph reading that in heaven, I'd say, is that the best you can put in about me? I mean, come on. I did this and this and this and this, and you put in there about my bones? You say, what is happening here in this particular story here? Joseph knew, I think, in a prophetic way that God said, your people, the Jewish people, are going to be living a long time because I'm going to continue the story I'm writing about the Jewish people. But I don't think he realized what would happen, and this didn't even occur until 400 years after he died, and those bones were put in the bone box, ossuary. Now, that took a lot of faith. To say, oh, Joseph, well, let's look at what Joseph, the way Joseph worded it. Shortly before he died, he predicted the exodus, and he gave instructions about his bones. What, what does it say? Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years. He saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Maker, son of Manasseh, were placed at the birth on Joseph's knees, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. 
but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and our father Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So he said, when you finally go back to, it, to the Holy Land, to, to Israel, take my bones. I'm, that's my land. That's my people. I've been serving you here in this foreign country. I don't want to stay here. And it was pretty easy because they had these boxes made out of stone called ossuaries, and they put the bones in there. He said, take that bones with you and bury it back in, the, in Canaan, into the Holy Land. And they embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph believed God would have eventually fulfilled the covenant he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he died, Joseph was buried according to the custom of his culture, but Egypt was not his final home. And so that's what's going on here. And then look what it says in Exodus 13, 9. This is, this is amazing to me. This happened, and this happened much, much later, and it says about Moses. This is 400 years later. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will come to your aid, and you might carry my bones up for you in this place. Now, think about how much faith that took for 400 years for this to occur. How old is America as a nation approximately in hundreds of years? How many, approximately? About 200 years, a little more than 200 years. So twice as long as we've been around as a nation or as long as that box of bones was sitting somewhere in Egypt. But the instruction passed down from generation to generation to generation. See that box right there? Yeah. When I die, you tell the next person to remember that because that needs to go to Israel. You, and then the next generation, you see that box over there? Yeah, when I die, you tell them. So somebody was the keeper of the bones. Some family was the keeper of the bones. And so they were protecting those bones. They didn't have like, you know, postcards they could put on it or writing. It wasn't like to be delivered to Israel 400 years. It wasn't like that. It was an oral tradition that was passed down to these people to carry back the bones. Someone did remember. So when did they remember? Century later, Moses took Joseph's bones to, with him to honor his brother's oath. Now, think about this. When the people were leaving Egypt, how would you like to have been there in the caravan when they were about to take off? All right. Do we have enough water? Yes. Do we have enough horses? Yes. Do we have enough animals? Are we pulling enough oxen? Do we have all the luggage? Do we have all the clothing we need? Do we have all the people all in line to go? Who's going to carry the box of bones? Oh, the box of bones. Yeah. So they bring the box of bones and they put it on a cart, maybe with some oxen, and off they go. It should have been an 11-day journey to get where they're going. It took them 40 years. It's because men never stop to ask for directions. We men know where we're headed. Even if we're dead lost, we know where we're going. No, because they disobeyed God. And so they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation died off. And a new generation comes into the Holy Land. And Moses dies. And a man named Joshua takes them in. But when Joshua went in, he took the bones with him. So those bones were around for 400 years. You talk about excess baggage. We're about to go through stuff and clean out our attic. We're not taking a box of great-granddaddy's bones with us to our new house, I don't think. They're not up in some attic somewhere of our relatives. 
that's what was going on here. They were a part of something much bigger, and they knew it was. It was the story of God. It was the story of faith. This person's in our faith, is our, is our, in our nation. We're going to honor him, and we're going to remember him because he had a legacy. That guy was important to the Jews. Abraham was important to the Jews. Isaac was important to the Jews. Jacob and Joseph were the four main guys that were important to Jewish people to remember in their history in the story of God. So it says, And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried in Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance. It's pretty amazing. After decades of wandering, they're finally buried. So Joseph is remembered as a man of loyalty. He's remembered as a man of forgiveness. He's remembered as a man of perspective, and he's remembered as a man of faith. What does God say about legacies? Here's what he says. Everyone leaves a legacy. Some of the most extraordinary legacies belong to the most ordinary people, and they are the sum total of the daily decisions of life. A legacy is not a mystery. It's the daily decisions that you make. So the question is, what legacy do you want to live and what do you need to do about it? How are you going to do it? Let me tell you a story. This is the story of a man that left a legacy. His name was Alfred. Alfred was reading the paper at breakfast and he read an obituary and he found his name in the paper that he had died. He's sitting there reading it. He's saying, this is a mistake. It's not me. And actually, it was his brother that had died. So that correction was made the next day. But Alfred wasn't too happy with the legacy that was stated. Because here's what it said about him in this legacy that was printed. Alfred was called the merchant of death. Because he invented something called dynamite. He was a scientist he was an engineer. He invented TNT to build roads and blow open mountains for tunnels. He also invented blasting caps. But many people took his technology, and instead of using it for that, what did they use it for? Bombs and wars and evil. He didn't want that to be his legacy. So seven years later, he took his fortune that he had made off of this, and he set up an endowment fund and he initiated it, and it's called to this very day the Nobel Prize. Alfred Nobel. And that's where it came from. The Nobel Peace Prize. Today, because of that, they hardly remember that he created dynamite. They just think that he's some wealthy man that wanted peace. And so that prize is given out every year to a man they think has brought great peace to the global world. And they reward it in that particular way. Most of us don't get that chance later in life like he did. But we do have the unique opportunity to decide our legacy now and work toward it. We don't have to wait until we come to an end to see what our lives become of. Because legacies are the sum totals of the daily life. So whenever your life ends, it's determined by the many decisions you've made day by day. One day I will die. 
And the truth of the matter is, everybody in this room is dying. We're all a few days closer to death than we were the first day we came to camp. When we go home, we'll be one week closer to death than we were before we left. Isn't that great news? We are dying. How will we be remembered? My kids will get some money that's left. They'll split up my house and possessions. But the question I have is, will they carry on my values? Not just get my stuff. But will they carry on the Christian faith we tried to pour into our three little kids when they're sitting around the evening on a couch and we're talking to them? Or we're praying with them in bed? Or we're taking them to Sunday school? Or like you guys are bringing them to a Christian camp and they're having Christian programming and people and counselors pouring into their lives in them and building up in their faith and doing what they're doing this week. So our response then, how do you want to be remembered? What kind of legacy do you want to live behind? And number two is a great exercise to do. Here's what it is. What epitaph do you want on your tombstone? Write it out in 20 words or less. I spent about a week praying about this, thinking about it, praying about, thinking about what, what, would I, what would I even want on a tombstone? And after really some serious time alone with God and my thoughts and looking backwards at our life, thinking if I'm getting near the end of my life, what will I want them to print? What will I want them to think? My family, people that know me, people that didn't even know. What, what would I want them to remember about what I did while I was on this planet? However many years I have left. And so I wrote my epitaph. And I'm going to show you my tombstone or what I would like it to say. I'll have no choice in that. My wife might say, he was nothing like he said. I, mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. My kids might say, no, we should say this about him. I don't know what they'll put on it. But if I could come back from the dead and write it, I'd probably put this. You want to see mine? Okay. I'm going to show it to you if you want to or not. Here's what I put. Steve Keys, October 1, 1952. Don't know the date. We'll chisel that in later. Loving husband and father. Let's start right there. I'd want people to know that I've been married to the wife of my youth and stayed faithful to her and pure to her till the last breath that I have. And that is my goal. We've been married now for 40 Let's get this, I've got her here to make sure I'm accurate. 45 and a half years. So we're doing good. We're pushing toward that 50 number when kids give you a party. <laughs> and you usually get some token or some, a gold watch or something. I don't know, you get cake punch if you can even drink it and, and eat it. I don't know. So I've got, I, I, maybe I'll make that. But I want to be that. And Father, I want my kids to know that I've loved them unconditionally that we've given to them the best that we know how to give. We've not been perfect parents. When we've failed them, we've said, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? When we've done right, we've said we've done our best. We can't do everything, but we've done the best. I want my kids to say, hey, they did a pretty good job. I want my kids to think that at least. I want that. Next one is generous steward. I told you a few nights ago, one of the principles I'm working on living by 
after I learned this from my friend Walt Wiley, <laughs> that I'm a steward of everything I am, everything I have, and everything I do. I don't own anything. It doesn't belong to me. It all belongs to God. I'm managing it for him while I'm here on planet Earth. What I am, who I am, what I do, what I have. And so I want to be known as a generous steward. I want to be known as a generous person who wasn't selfish, who wasn't stingy, who didn't care for people or needs when he saw something that there was a need, but he really tried to reach out and do the best he could with what he had. I would like to be known as that kind of a person, to be a generous steward. Number three, that I've been a faithful pastor to my flock. Starting out as a youth pastor and then moving to South Carolina to be a youth pastor and then being an associate pastor and then leaving there and being a church planter and starting a new church and see that grow and then move to a permanent facility and pass it over to another pastor and stay working with the other and to continue on in that relationship where I've been now for many, many, many years in pastoral work. I would like to say that I did the best job I could as a pastor and as a teacher, and to travel for 33 years with Walk Through the Bible has been really one of the amazing joys of my entire life. I love the church world. I love my people in our church, but I love getting to meet people like you and going to new places and seeing people. And like the stories I've told you some this week have been amazing for this small town guy from a little town in Greenville, South Carolina, getting to go and to minister to lots of different churches and different denominations and meet God's people in all of them. You see, I grew up with a real narrow focus. I grew up real strict as a legalistic background where I thought this is about the narrow part of heaven where we're going to live real close to Jesus. I'm not even sure some of the Methodists are going to get in. But, but, but this is where I'm living right here. And then the other folks in the other denominations are going to be spread to those outer cabins that are needing to be torn down out of there. I'm going to, the independent Baptists, we're going to be right there in the central focus in the crosshairs straight at the throne. That's kind of what I was taught. That is a bunch of poppycock. The body of Christ, there's no denominations in heaven. You're either his child or you're not. He's not going to say, well, the Presbyterians there, the Episcopalians there. That's not how it works. We're part of the body of Christ. And it comes in all stripes and all types and all colors. And that's great because that's the church of God. So when we remembered that if I, best I knew how, that I was faithful. Have I stumbled along the way and always been faithful? No. But that's my desire and I want to push over and I want to finish well. There are a lot of pastors that go along pretty well and all of a sudden they just go pew right off the deep end. There's a book called God's Generals. It's about famous revivalists and pastors of the past hundred years in our country. And many of them just lost their faith and went off the deep end at the end of their life. I want to finish well. I do. I, it's one of the goals I have in my life is to finish well. And then, hopefully this will be true, a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. That he's my Lord, he's my Savior, everything I have belongs to him, he's my provider, he's my healer, Holy Spirit is my comforter, my Father God has been good to me and my family, I never want to take any of that for granted. We see a lot of people in a lot of trouble and mess and disappointment and heartbreak 
that have passed through our lives as a pastoral couple for many, many years. We've tried to work with them, love them the best we could. But I want to really trust that this will be true about me when I take my last breath on planet Earth, that that could be true. Will that really happen? I don't know. They can put that or they can put something else. People write some strange things on tombstones. I kind of hope this goes on mine. What is yours going to look like? What would you like to have on it? If there's one exercise out of all the questions in the book I'd like you to take seriously, it's this one. Work on it. Not, not tonight. Pray about it. Be thinking, jot down some notes. Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask God to help you do this. What would you like to have said? And that was an interesting exercise for me to work through. Because that really shows you your mortality when you're starting to talk about what's going to be on your tombstone. Didn't even think about it when I was young. Promise you. What tangible steps do you need to take to prepare those closest to you to carry out your desires and perpetuate your values? What's it going to be? Well, that's the course on detour. I hope it's been helpful to you, practical, challenging at times, hard, hard sayings at times. But I hope also it's been fun for you and interesting for you to learn that you can take this book and you can go back and you can review some of these notes. You can process. You can go through some of those questions. And you can continue to process this story because it has so much depth to it. I all the books in the world couldn't contain the truth in that story. It's just an amazing story from chapter 37 to 50 in the book of Genesis. Read it again with fresh eyes and remember things we've learned. And let that, those truths of the Old Testament soak into your soul. So let's pray tonight. And for the final time, I want to just give you a blessing. If you'll just extend your hands toward me, I'm just going to pray a blessing, a pastor's blessing over you. Father, for every hand that's open, I pray that they would leave a legacy of a godly person, a godly person to their family, to their husband, to their wife, to their to strangers around them, to their coworkers, that they would have a godly heritage for every hand that's open and that you would take us home and call us at your per perfect time and your sovereign plan and will. And we would rejoice that we can spend forever with you. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen.